Um, as you take a seat, have a look up at the, at the screen and um, have a think about this quote. Have a think about this quote up at the screen. Um, this is not the scripture for today, so you are allowed to disagree with it. Um, I did just find it on a mummy blogger website. But when tough times come, you know who your true friends are. Who runs and who rallies? We do live in a world where it's hard to know who truly is our friend. I don't know if you do agree with this or whether that's been your experience or not. But either way, it shows you something about our world. There, there's a restlessness or an insecurity um, within our hearts. We want to know who it is that we can actually rely on. Now, for some, it may even come to writing posts on social media like this one. Um, and just to be fair on this, this is 2011. If you look at anyone's Facebook page in 2011, you're probably going to dig up something embarrassing. Um, so I've de-identified this person. Wait, is it someone here? No, it's not someone here. No, it's not. Uh, it says, most of us have at least 200 friends on Facebook, but when it comes to needing a friend to talk to, how many will actually be there for you? I can guarantee not even 15 of your Facebook friends will like this status. Like this status if you will be there for me. <laughs> Set this as your status and see which friends will be there for you. Well, I'm happy to say the, that first little black box down the bottom is actually, it says you. So I like this status. I was a true friend. But he was right. Only 12 friends in total did like his status. Now, I'm not sure whether that proves his point or not, but... Maybe you've seen these kinds of posts on Facebook over the years. Maybe you've posted something like that before. And regardless of how you feel about those posts, it reveals that restlessness or that insecurity within us. We need to know who we can trust. We need to know who we can rely on, who we can pour out our hearts before and who we need to keep at an arm's distance. And we may think of this as a, as a new problem that social media has amplified our insecurity and, and perhaps Facebook and Instagram have a role to play in that, but the reality is it's not a new problem. In fact, this question is the one that King David wrestled with in today's scripture. Today we're reading a Psalm of David written in a time of desperation and he's determining who his true friends really are. He wrestles with the question, who will rally? And who will run? Who can I truly depend on? And who are just my fake friends? We're going to read the psalm together now. And we're going to join David in exploring this restless question. In whom can we really trust? Who is our true friend in tough times? If you've got a Bible with you, open up to Psalm 62. Or if you want to get it up on your phone, Psalm 62 is where we are. If you don't have a Bible and would like one, just raise your hand and David will bring one around to you. Um, otherwise, the scripture, as you can see, is up on the screen and you can follow along up there. Psalm 62. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will, you, will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? 
They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Let me pray. Lord, I depend on you this morning. May your word speak powerfully to the depths of my soul and to all those gathered here. May your spirit make clear the preaching of your word. Amen. Well, I've said that David was weighing up who his true friends were as he penned this psalm. He was in a a moment of desperation and he needed to know who can he rely on. And there are two candidates that we see here, God and men. And David goes back and forth between them. If you look at the psalm, we've got the first couple of verses, he's talking about God, then he's talking about men, then he's talking about God, then he's talking about men, and he finishes by talking about God. Now, it doesn't take a genius to see who he decides on, so I'm not going to wait for like, the big reveal at the end of the sermon. <laughs> if you're taking notes this morning, I've titled my sermon, A True Friend in Tough Times. And as David is determining who he can truly depend on, we're going to go through four points. God is our salvation, spoiler alert. God is our rock. Men are not. So, point four, trust in God alone. Let's get started with verse one. Our psalm starts today with a statement of faith. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. My soul waits for God. And I I must confess, until sitting down to prepare this sermon, I loved singing that when the Psalm 62 song came on. I wasn't entirely sure exactly what it meant. What does waiting for God actually mean? Is it like waiting for a bus? Is it like (laughs) waiting for Christmas? Perhaps it's like waiting for roadside assistance? (laughs) Waiting for God... Well, that idea of waiting in general, when we use it in English, it almost always is related to the passing of time. But the Hebrew word that's used in today's psalm is actually trans- can also be translated as rest, or it can be translated as trust. It implies a stillness and a silence 
in this very moment. So we're talking in the present tense. And David is saying here that there is a calm assurance in his soul. Now, when I think about this idea of calm assurance, I think of our daughter Millie. She's not always calm. She's not always assured. But um, a couple of months ago, we made a decision to ditch the dummy. And, you know, it, it, she'd been very reliable at bedtime, um, always asking, can I go to bed now? Can I go to bed now? Um, that all changed one day. So we so, sort of thought we had it all figured out. We sat down with her and we explained what was going to happen. And we even got an envelope. We put all our dummies in the envelope and we put the, that in the post box and said we were sending it to a new baby. She was really excited about it. She was. She she was excited until it came to bedtime. <laughs> and normally she's so calm, she's so peaceful, almost eager to get into bed. But all of a sudden she was stressed. She was screaming and crying. I don't know how to sleep on my own. And Claire gave her a little cuddle and she said, I'll just be outside your door. And to, as much to our surprise as anyone's, that was enough for her. It was like she was fine. Okay, mummy. And she lay down in bed and slept the night through. Praise the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Every night since, without fail, we put her to bed and she says to us, Mummy, stand outside my door. Or Daddy, stand outside my door. You see, her parents' presence is enough for her. She doesn't need us to touch her or pat her. She doesn't need us to sing to her. She doesn't need us... She doesn't even need to see us. She just needs to know that we are there. And that's enough for her to rest easily. And so it is with David. His soul waits on God. That is, his soul finds stillness and calm assurance in God. God's presence has that settling effect on his soul. It relaxes, it soothes, it assures, and he can rest. The first question then is why? Why does it have that effect? And that comes from the next part of verse 1. Because from him comes my salvation. It's not entirely clear at what stage of David's life he wrote this psalm, whether it was towards the beginning or towards the end. But needless to say, whenever this was in David's life, God has already proven himself to be David's saviour. He's done that before this point. David is speaking from experience. Even as a young boy, God enabled David the impossible victory over Goliath. And David's life since that point has just been marked by times where he was attacked, times where he was in trouble. And all of these times are also stories of deliverance. God has been his salvation. And these, all these moments can be attributed to God. And so because of that, his soul waits in silence. If true friends are determined in tough times, David looks back at his life and he can see God has a proven track record. God has been there in the tough times. He has been my salvation in the tough times. And so there's an expectation now. David expects, not only has God been my salvation, but God is my salvation now, and God will be my salvation 
into the future. So it is with followers of Christ. God has already proven himself to be our salvation. We were justified the moment that God turned our hearts to him. It was he who moved. He who turned your heart. It was his mercy and grace that brought you to your knees. He has provided that salvation already. But also we know and we're expectant that he is continuing that salvation. He's preserving and sustaining and growing your faith in the present. If we were left to our own strength, we would wander away. It is his sustaining grace that makes this possible. It is a mighty miracle of God that you are still a Christian today. So he has been our salvation and he is our salvation and because of that, we have hope that he will be our salvation on the day of ultimate deliverance. And when that day comes, there'll be no doubt who salvation comes from. There'll be no man bold enough to stick up their hand and say, look at me, Jesus, aren't I amazing? I turned to you and I was faithful to you. Look at me, aren't I brilliant? How ridiculous to flatter yourself, to think that you have earned your salvation yourself and that you deserve the credit. Now, the Bible says that every knee will bow before his throne. He will be our salvation on that final day. So, he was our salvation back when you tur- he turned your heart to Christ. He is your salvation as he sustains your faith. And he will be your salvation on that final day when you meet Christ face to face. So we trust God to do his job, that is to save. That's on him. That leaves us to do our job, to wait in silence. God is our salvation. And now we move on to point two. God is our rock. And to help me illustrate my point here, I've actually brought a visitor along with me this morning who, by my reckoning, is actually older than anyone in this room. I met him last week as I was walking around the new neighbourhood and he tells me he's not only around for both world wars of the 20th century, he was also around when the British colonised Australia. Crazy. Some say he was even old enough to remember the last time the Parramatta Eels won a grand final. (laughs) I talk, of course, about this little friend here, my little rock. Amazing. Rocks are amazing things. To think, before any of the world's ancient civilizations were around, this rock was already millions of years old. I wonder what stories this rock might tell if it had a voice. I wonder what history it knows, has actually experienced, that we can only make guesses at, that expert historians can only make guesses at. Were there really dinosaurs in these lands? What did they look like? What did they do? How did they behave? What did they eat? We actually make guesses about these things based on the imprints in the side of a rock 
but the rock was there. Consider for a moment the many human kingdoms and civilizations that have risen up, proud empires full of extraordinary humans that have since been turned to dust, outlasted by my little friend here. Don't underestimate the humble rock. My friends, so it is with our God. Long before creation, God was there from everlasting. And just as the humble rock stands unmoved by the raging storm, so it is with our God. Ever since the Garden of Eden, humanity has been trying to challenge God. We've been trying to remove God or trying to ignore God. But contrary to what many atheists will tell you, God is not dead. Our God stands firm through the ages. He is our mighty rock. Please look at verse 2. It says, God alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I will not be greatly shaken. (coughs) You see, the metaphor of the rock here suggests more than what could be achieved just in a literal description. David could have just said, he alone is steadfast, or he alone is strong, or he alone is eternal. But the metaphor of a rock is fitting, and particularly when you consider the, the psalmist's life. You see, David has a history with rocks. When David was faced with an impossible enemy in Goliath, God provided rocks. When when David was being chased by enemies, being pursued on a number of occasions, God provided caves. God used literal rocks to show David and to demonstrate him that he is his protector, his strength, his hideaway. So David rightly declares, God alone is my rock and God alone is my salvation. He is my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. I I will not be greatly shaken. It's a very realistic comment. I will not be greatly shaken, he says. Perhaps he's acknowledging some of his own personal weakness here. He is actually a human. He, is, he has real struggles. He has real sin. He has real doubts. He has real enemies. The Bible doesn't hide that away about David's life. He was human. And these things caused him to wobble. Charles Spurgeon compares this verse to an anchored boat in a storm. It may be tossed this way and that. It may move here and it may move there. But it will stay fixed to the anchor. So it may be moved, but it will not be removed. 
It may be shaken, but it will not be greatly shaken. So don't be deceived. You and I, like David, we will stumble. We will face real struggles. We will face real sin. We will wrestle with real doubts, perhaps even a full-blown faith crisis. But if we're holding fast to God's hand, he will not let us fall. Though we may trip, he is holding us up. We will not be greatly shaken. Not because of our own strength, but because God is our rock. Because he is ancient and he is steadfast and he is dependable and strong. And so as David recalls God's faithfulness to him, he's acknowledging God's track record. He is seeing that God has proven himself to be a true friend. Firstly, because God is his salvation. Secondly, because God is his rock. In verses 3 and 4, David determines that men are not. He turns his attention here from God towards his enemies. And he says, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? David describes himself here as feeble, broken, on the brink of collapse. Why do you continue to attack me? Can you not see? I'm done. His enemies have identified his weakness. They see what he's like, a tottering fence, and they think all he needs is an extra shove. He describes his enemies in verse 4 as slanderers. He says they are only interested in tearing him down from his position. He says they take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly, they curse. So they're two-tongued. Certainly not true friend material. We see here an image of sinful humanity that is the exact opposite of the character of God. But it's true. Now, by God's grace, humans do show mercy at times. And humans are honest at times. Humanity is not left entirely without integrity. But when we look deep into the heart of humanity, it's obvious that there's a problem, isn't it? Greed so frequently overpowers generosity. And selfish ambition so frequently overpowers a service of others. Pride so frequently overpowers integrity. David's description of candidate number two, that is humanity, is not pretty. But it gives us an idea that David's circumstances were real. When reading scripture, it's really easy for us to just imagine these holy men seating on a cloud with a harp as they pen their odes to God. That wasn't David's circumstance. He was in the real world. He had real enemies. 
And he looked around at a world that you, that's similar to the world that you and I see. He saw humanity and decided, my friends are fake. They presented to him as loyal and dependable. But in reality, they were evil. They plotted his destruction behind his back. Now, this is just a brief explanation as to why men are not David's true friends. They are fake. He will come back with some extra ammunition on that point later in the psalm. But I want to keep us moving to point four, trust in God alone. And this is going to cover the remainder of the psalm, but we'll take it a couple of verses at a time. So from verse 5, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? David is more or less repeating his statement of faith from the start of the psalm. But there are some minor tweaks. It's not exact copy. There's some added emphasis. Now, in the context of his enemies being under attack from his enemies, there's a change of tone in David's voice. If you look back at verse 1, he says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. That is a statement of faith. If you look at verse 5, he says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. That's a plea. He's not merely describing the state of his soul. He's pleading with his soul. Continue to wait in silence. Continue to cling to God. Look in verse 2. We started with, I shall not be greatly shaken. In verse 6, I shall not be shaken. He's dropped the realistic. He's changed tone completely. He is refusing to be shaken. And we see why in the next verse there. Because on God rests my salvation and my glory. God will not let it happen. On him those things depend. These do not depend on me. These do not depend on my enemies. They depend only on God. I may be wobbly. I may be weak. But he is not. He is my mighty rock. He is my refuge. So if I depend on him, I will not be shaken. So we see this psalm starts with David calmly reciting God's truths to himself. God is my rock. God is my salvation. I will not be greatly shaken. These are God's truths and they are good. We then see verse 3 and 4, David comes under attack. And his response in verses 5 and 6, 5 to 7, is clinging tighter to God. And rather than merely reciting these truths to himself again, he shouts them at himself. What a valuable lesson for us to learn. Memorize and rehearse the promises of God in Scripture. 
To know the word of God, to have his promises imprinted in our minds is of great value at all times, whether you're in peace or whether you're in turmoil. So on Sunday, we come here, we recite God's truths together. We make statements of our faith. As we read the Bible, we read of God's promises and we're encouraged by their truth in that moment. But the real value of having God's truths memorised is for when we come under attack. We have the word of God ready in those moments to shout at ourselves, a pep talk in the throes of battle. In these moments, you're not likely to whip out the Bible and to flick through for the right encouraging verse. You need to have this on tap. It needs to be available on demand. Memorised and rehearsed for moments such as these. That's why we do the memory verses. They're excellent truth in our peace times and they're something to cling to in battle. Next verse we come across here, verse 8. David is turning now from preaching to himself and he's preaching to those around him. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. He's urging his neighbours not just to come before God, but to pour out their hearts before him. I wonder if you have friends that you feel comfortable pouring your heart out before. Talking about the kind of friend that you can trust completely. Nothing held back. No secrets. That's how David urges us to come before God. Tip everything out before him. The good, the bad and the ugly. Do you trust God like that? Or are there times where you're hesitant to pour out before God? Are there things that you keep a little bit back in the jar? Is there some struggle of sin which you are too ashamed to mention before God? Perhaps you keep it hidden away. It's like that one room of the house that you skip over when you're giving the guests a tour. Here's the kitchen, here's the living room, and oh, I'll just close that door, don't look in there. <laughs> Entrust God with it. There are no secrets with God. He knows everything. And he loves you still. So give it over to him. He is quick to forgive. Perhaps there are parts of your life that you're unwilling to relinquish control over. You want to be the one to call the shots in your relationships, maybe, or in your finances. You can pray, your will be done, God, in everything except this one particular thing. My will be done in my finances. I'll look after that, but you look after everything else. The truth is God is in control of all things already. 
and he knows what's best for you. So give it over to him. Entrust him with it. Even those things that you feel most precious about. You're giving them over to someone who you can trust. So David urges us, pour out your hearts before him. That's a hard thing to do. Really hard. But we have nothing to fear in doing so. Because as David assures us at the end of verse 8, God is a refuge. God is a safe place for us. He can be trusted. We're going to move on to verses 9 and 10 now, where David returns to his description of men. And he further explains why they do not deserve his trust. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. If God is compared to a rock, firm, eternal, immovable, men are compared to a breath. I tried to bring one along to show you, but <laughs> it's soft. It's, it's fleeting. You can't even see it. You couldn't get two greater extremes of metaphor here. It says, men of lowly estate are a breath. That part comes with no surprises. We often don't put our trust in men of lowly estate. Men of high estate are a delusion. Don't be fooled. Men or women who look successful or who look reliable or who maybe even look infallible are still only human. We've seen this countless times in all areas of society. Unfortunately, within churches too. Men and women are fatally flawed. Regardless of appearances, all men and all women fall short. They are lighter than a breath. Now, every year, often around Father's Day, maybe on an anniversary, you see gushing posts about men on Facebook. And I've got no issue with public appreciation. It's great to see you appreciating your husbands, ladies. But there is one recurring phrase that seems to come up in these posts. He is the rock of our family. Or he is my rock. I even heard it in a wedding speech a couple of weeks ago. Thank you for being my rock. Wives, as amazing as your husbands may be, and I have to say, looking around this room, some pretty amazing husbands out there. He is not your rock. He is but a breath. Now, I'm not saying don't trust your husband. <laughs> but know this, he cannot be your refuge. He cannot be your hope. He cannot be your salvation. 
That role belongs only to God. Don't expect your husband to be something which he cannot be. And men, don't think that just because you're not posting on Facebook that you're off the chain. I know I am guilty of this as well. Without Claire, my life would crumble, I'm pretty sure. She cannot be my rock. I may never eat again. My children, <laughs> my children probably turn feral and the house a pigsty. <clears throat> but if my soul truly depends on God alone, then I can say, I will not be shaken. He alone is my rock and my salvation. And now it's not, it's not just people who we are fooled into trusting. They are not the only false rocks that we come across. When you depend on or when you hope in anything other than God, you are bound to be disappointed. If you make health your rock, when the doctor hands over a negative diagnosis, you will be shaken. Or if you make wealth your rock, when the stock market crashes 30%, you will be shaken. If you make career your rock, when you lose your job, when you miss out on a promotion, perhaps even just when you retire, you will be shaken. I'm reminded of the words of a hymn I'll put it up on the board, please. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. You may ask, though, why is God any different to the, all those other things? How can I be so sure that he is, in fact, a rock and not a breath or sinking sand? And that brings us to our last verses of the psalm, verses 11 and 12. Once God has spoken this, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. When God speaks, it pays to listen. When God speaks twice, you'd have to be a fool to ignore. God in these verses declares and then repeats two essential characteristics about himself, which indicate that he is worthy of our trust. The first, power belongs to him. And secondly, to him belongs steadfast love. These two characteristics of God must go together. It is crucial that he is powerful and that he is loving. If God were all powerful but not loving, we ought to be afraid. Power without mercy, without compassion, it's a dangerous and it's a destructive thing. 
The world is full of examples of people who have too much power and too little love. And the result is abuse. So it's important that God is not merely powerful. So what if God were all loving but not powerful? But what can love do with no power? What would distinguish God from a puppy dog? In order to be our rock, in order to be our salvation, he must be strong. He must have power. So we see it's crucial that God holds these two characteristics, that he is both all-powerful and steadfast in love. And it's because God is both of these things that, God, that David can truly trust in him, can truly wait in silence on him. And if you look at the last verse of the psalm, it's because God holds these two characteristics that also that David can be certain that God will render to man according to his work. That is God, being all-powerful and all-loving, is the only one qualified to justly judge all men and women, to richly reward those who trust fully in him, and also, in the end, to bring justice to the wicked. If you recall in verse 10, it, says, it seems that the wicked are flourishing, that their riches are increasing on the back of extortion and robbery. But David says, don't trust in those things because justice is coming. Our God, who is both all-powerful and all-loving, will have the final say. That's where you need to trust. When tough times come, you know who your true friends are. Who runs and who rallies. David learned this when he was in a desperate situation and his findings were conclusive. There is only one who will never disappoint. There is only one who can be your rock and your salvation. Make sure that you are standing firmly on him. I want to close with a parable of Jesus from Matthew 7. I wonder, as I've been preaching how many of you had this parable come to mind? These are the words of Jesus. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell. And the floods came. And the wind blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Church, there is only one who can be your rock, your refuge, 
your salvation and your hope. If you put your trust in him, in him alone, anything else will be a disappointment. Anything else will end in disaster. But hope in him, dependence on him, rest in him, your house will stand on the rock. Let me pray for us. Oh God, our rock and our salvation, we praise you because you are both all-powerful and endlessly merciful. Lord, help us not to be deceived, to put our hope or our trust in this world, but may we lean on you with all that we have, pouring our hearts out before you, for you alone are our hope. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.